Hi, I'm Ann Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. I am so honored and excited to be interviewing Hope Edelman today. Hope was 17 when she lost her mother to breast cancer. She published her first book, Motherless Daughters, when she was just 30 years old, and it became a number one New York Times bestseller. She's published six additional books, and her work has been translated into 14 languages. Hope has also published articles and essays in numerous publications and anthologies, including the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, among many others. Her latest book, The Aftergrief, is about how early loss affects people's lives over the long term which aligns perfectly with my goal for this podcast. So I have lots of questions for Hope as an expert on adolescent grief, but also as someone who has devoted her life to studying her own grief alongside hundreds of others. And Hope is a grief and loss coach, and she has a very large support community called motherlessdaughters.com, which is global. So Hope, welcome to Are We There Yet? Thank you, Anne. Glad to be here. So you write in the introduction to Motherless Daughters that you set out to write a book that would help people who found themselves in your position, someone who had lost her mother before she was grown up. So you were on a quest to figure out what could help you manage and understand your own grief. So how would you compare what you were looking for back then to what you've actually discovered in your many years of research and writing about it? when I first started writing that book is so different than what I find today, you know, it's 30 years later. Exactly. Motherless Daughters was initially published in 1994. It's now in its third edition. So I had the opportunity to revisit that book at three different times in my life. When I wrote Motherless Daughters, I was 28, 29 years old, and it was such an incredible relief to meet so many other women who had lost mothers when they were young. When I interviewed them, I heard my own story repeated back to me over and over again. And I think I found a sense of community and solidarity that I'd never had before. So I think, you know, it certainly was a huge step in my own healing to be in community with those other women. And then over the years to write a book about parenting, because I also wrote Motherless Mothers, and then to write The After Grief and really discover what it had meant to me to not have had a mother for 30 years, but also to have had this profound loss event that was never addressed when I was young. That is the overwhelming feedback I receive from women who come to my retreats or to my support group calls or to the groups that I co-facilitate or to my writing workshops. It's that a mother died when they were a child, a teenager, even a young adult and their grief was never attended to and their feelings and their mother's death and in often cases her life was never discussed and it's that silence that has such a corrosive effect on them we know from many studies that what happens after a mother dies can have as much effect or more of an effect on a daughter or son than um or as the loss itself. That certainly was the case in my story. And, um, you know, really by researching the after grief, I was able to see how the ripple effects that I knew had occurred for me, you know, over the course of decades were predictable and very, very typical for someone who had experienced early loss. I'm not sure if that answers your question fully. Well, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, it's everything that I've been 
gathering from reading the after grief. And I think my question is really, what do you think you were looking for back then? Or were you really just looking for some kind of relief? I was looking for an explanation why I was thinking and feeling the way I was thinking and feeling Mm. at that point, 10 years after my mother had died, because every message that I'd received about grief as a young person and a young adult was that it happened in stages and I should be quote over it by now. Right. And I wasn't. So I set out to understand um, what I'd done wrong, essentially. And instead, what I encountered, because I wrote Motherless Daughters in the early 1990s, when a big shift was happening in the way the culture thinks about grief, or certainly the way that academics and therapists were thinking about grief, there was a big shift occurring from what we call stage theory, which is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, the five stages of grief, a la Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, to what's now known as continuing bonds, which is finding a way to stay connected to our loved ones because grief will grief is cyclical not linear and that was the story that i heard over and over again from the women i was interviewing and i realized oh it's i'm not going to figure out what's wrong with me um, and how to heal i'm discovering that actually my experience is the norm yeah and it was a big surprise to me because um, I thought there can't be this many other women, like, you know, 90% of the women I'm interviewing can't also have gotten grief wrong. And I remember going out for lunch with my, the book editor, my editor in New York City, where I was living at the time and saying to her, I, I don't, how can I write a book that tells women that they're going to miss their moms forever and they're never going to get over, you know, the losing her because that's what I'm hearing. I said, how can I, how can I write a book that tells them that? And she said, you're going to write a book that tells them that because it's the truth and it's honest and they're going to be grateful and relieved to read it. Wow. And she was right. Yeah. I mean, I love your new book, The After Grief. Um, can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write it and when you first started formulating the ideas for that one? I think, you know, as I lived and experienced more of life, especially beyond the age that my mother had lived to, I was beginning to see how my grief was shape-shifting over time, but grief didn't seem like the right word for it anymore. I think grief is a very accurate and useful term for the acute phase when we're in emotional pain and, and learning how to exist in the world without our loved one. But for me, it had been 30 years and I knew how to exist in the world without her. I had existed in the world for much longer than I had with her. But I still felt that it was affecting me on a, on a regular basis. You know, this knowledge, this experience, this worldview that was so different from so many of the other women that I knew who hadn't lost a parent when they were young. And the more research I did, the more I realized this is not just among women who've lost mothers. I mean, I knew this, but I'd never really gotten into that research before. This same is true for women who've lost fathers, for men who've lost mothers or fathers, for adults who lost siblings when they were young. How does 
that brush with the horror and the mystery and the awe and the confusion of death at such a formative time in our lives shape us over the long term? And how is it likely to show up again and again and again over the decades? No one's really talking about that. And at the same time, we don't have a word to describe it. And I remember just driving one day down a canyon. I lived at the top of a canyon in Los Angeles at the time. And every day I would drive down to the bottom. And I remember one day making this drive and thinking, what is the name for what comes after grief? Like, what can we call it? This phase that's after the acute phase, what comes after grief? And by the time I got to the bottom of the canyon, I thought, well, maybe let's call it the after grief. Because it, it, I think of it, and people say to me, when does the after grief begin? You know, I can't point to a calendar and say, here, it will happen on this day or in this month. It happens when generally for most people, I'm going to say at the two-ish year point, some people sooner, some people later, it depends on so many different factors. But it's when you feel within yourself that you are waking up in the morning and you're feeling hopeful about the future. You can experience joy again. It does not feel like the only event in your life that defines you. You feel that you are adjusting and able to think of a future without this person in it um, and are feeling confident that you will experience moments of joy in that future or can in addition to the lingering sadness that you may always feel. To me, that's when we transition into the after grief. My favorite part of the after grief is the introduction because it's so validating to read that. Um, and it's so validating to hear you use the words, um, quote, bereavement needs were mismanaged and misunderstood. I mean, when I read that, I just said, hallelujah. I, I just really appreciated that wording. Um, because it takes the onus off me and my inner 14 year old to fix herself. Right. So I want to, I want to thank you for that because I think our culture puts undue pressure on the bereaved to find their own healing. And it's nonsense for a kid, you know, our, our lack of community around grief hurts all of us. And I want teens and their families to understand that it's, it's gotta be a team effort and kids can't just heal themselves with, you know, even some therapy or grief counseling, it really does take a village. Um, and it takes a lifetime too. Yes. And those of us who are adults who were children and teenagers when our mothers died, it's likely that many of us lost a parent before, like I'm going to say the late 1990s, right. which is when family grief services started becoming available yeah. on a wider scale. Yeah. Um, I lost my mom in 1982 and there was nothing. We didn't even have hospice in our community yet. She died in the hospital where everyone would die unless they died suddenly yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. And there were, there were no services for um, children. Absolutely. And nobody, and, and such a, a, a poor understanding of how children grieve and how it's different from adults. Yeah. I think to still today, you know, um, families, it really requires a community to come together to try to fill that void, you know, and, and personally, I blame our blindness to this fact on our discomfort with suffering in general, but especially kids suffering. I mean, we don't like to think about a kid who's suffering. So we, we tend to convince ourselves that they're okay. Um, you know, when they really could use a lot more support. So I just, I'm wondering like, how would you define bereavement that 
that wasn't mismanaged or misunderstood? It would include some of the elements that you just mentioned, the sense of a, of a community. So a community can be really any group of people who come together with a shared purpose, in this case, to hold and support a family or a child or a teenager. It could be um, a religious community. It could be the extended family. It could be a, a group at the school, like a team and a coach. It could be um, a neighborhood really anything. Um, I think we would start with that, that form of social support. And then these would be either people who have the knowledge or the psychoeducation or are able to obtain it to understand how a child grieves differently than an adult and understand that a child will need to revisit these circumstances and the story of the loss periodically over their development so that they can create a story that is more aligned with their current cognitive and uh, emotional maturity. Yeah. Uh, what a six-year-old understands is really different than what a 12-year-old understands. And the way that a 12-year-old explains what happened can be very different than the way an 18-year-old will interpret events. So absolutely, ideally, this community can be there over the course of that child's life, that may not be a realistic assumption. You know, people move, mm -hmm. friend groups change. So it's really the guardians that need to understand that, the caregivers. Yeah. To really sit down with that child and be aware of different points in that child's development where the loss is likely to resurface so that you can understand that what the child is um, experiencing emotionally, behaviorally may be related to an event that occurred many years earlier yeah. instead of some kind of struggle that they are having in the moment. Right. No, I feel so lucky because I had um, my mom's best friend live down the block and um, she became such a, she was such a keeper of stories mm. and a great storyteller. So I asked her for stories of my mother for years and it wasn't, she never offered them, but somehow I always knew she was available to tell them. So yeah, I really probably didn't start asking her until I was into my twenties and, but I kept asking. And, um, so it's, it's sometimes people just being there and knowing that they have those stories to impart to the kids who are missing the parent. Um, that's a huge, huge gift. It is. And we could talk for an entire hour about how to collect um, a mother's stories, how to get to know her as a woman rather than just a mother. I work closely with clients who are embarking on that journey. Mm. But I have very sadly had a few friends who have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses who have come to me and asked, what can I do to prepare my children mm. for my death? And one of the answers I have for them is um, create a list of your story keepers who can tell your children stories from your childhood, who can tell them stories that might be an older sibling or a, a longtime friend, who can tell them about who you were in high school, who you were in college or during your young adult years, who you were as a new mother, right? Right and ask those people if they can be available 
and continue to make themselves available to your children in the years that follow. And I did it myself, even though I have no plans to leave the planet anytime soon. Yeah. Um, just contacted a few good friends and said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm helping some women do this. And I thought it's never too early to set that in place. Would you be my story keeper for college? You know, I make sure my, my kid, make sure you know how to reach my kids and they know how to reach you. And she said, of course, and, mm. you know, a friend from high school, will you tell her about, tell them about junior high and high school? And and they know who to go to, you know, when I was a young mother, because those women are still my friends today and they know how to reach them. So I, I think that's really very important, especially, especially when daughters reach about their mid twenties. If they've lost a mother when they were a child or a teenager, chances are they'll reach their mid twenties and they will observe their friends having more more of a woman to woman relationship with their mother. It's that coming full circle after the separation and individuation process of adolescence. And they will feel that painful void because their mom isn't there to do that with. And that's when they're going to start having questions about who she was as a woman, not just as a mom. And to have access to some people who can share those stories and have access to those stories can be incredibly healing for a daughter at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with the after grief, you expanded your research beyond daughters who'd lost mothers. Um, mm -hmm. But I know, you know, and clearly from from what you're saying in your workshops and retreats, it sounds like you still mainly focus on mother loss. Um, and I read in the intro to the latest edition of Motherless Daughters that studies have shown the loss of a mother to be in general more disruptive and destabilizing than father loss. Um, mm -hmm. so I wonder if over the years you have begun to, um, I don't know if question is the right word, but to sort of open up that focus on one gender over another, especially when mm -hmm. there's so many families with parents of the same gender and so many non-binary parents and non-binary kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, certainly this next generation is pushing all of us to question our assumptions about these roles and how much they're the result of cultural or social conditioning. So do you think um, that motherless daughters means the same thing today as it did 20 years ago or will 20 years from now? That's a good question. I mean, motherless daughters serves women who are daughter identified. Mm -hmm. So we will work with any um, non-binary individual or female identified mm -hmm. individual who, who identifies as a daughter. Mm -hmm. And we certainly have worked with women who have two moms. Mm -hmm. In terms of expanding services to beyond women or female identified daughter you know, or daughter identified mm -hmm. um, individuals who've lost a mother mm -hmm. um, or someone they identify as their mother, mm -hmm. because we would work with someone who has a biologically male parent who was in the, the role of mother, okay. let's say, so mother identified. Um, in terms of expanding beyond that, there are, when I wrote the after grief, you know, and I was aware of this, but it really, I really became even more aware of it. How many institutions, programs, individuals, enterprises are out there already helping children who have, or teenagers who have experienced father loss because it is statistically so much more common. Oh. There are organizations that, that help adults who um, have lost a 
sibling um, when they were young. Well, you know, I, I will say who loses sibling now. What the area in which I work is called historical loss. Mm. Grief centers typically help individuals who have experienced a recent loss. So if you are an adult who loses a parent, there will be a group for you. If you are an adult who lost a parent when you were a child, there typically isn't. That's a historical loss. It's a loss from the past. Um, We are expanding motherless daughters to include adult mother loss and acute grief because I've received so many requests from women who have recently lost their mothers. Mm. And those women are now welcome on the weekly motherless daughters community calls. We have women there who've lost mothers at any age. It skews now toward women who were children and teenagers when their moms died, because that those are the ones who tend to find my work mm-hmm. and look. But we are going to be expanding to recent mother loss. So if you're an adult who lost a mom, um, maybe you lost a father when you were young and your mother later in life. Um, or just lost your first parent and it it was your mom or your dad died a few years ago and now you lost your mom. We'll be servicing that population as well. But I haven't expanded yet into father loss or men who've lost uh, a parent or sibling when they were young, simply because those are, that is a population that typically does not avail itself of grief services. Mm. So I may be working with grief centers in the future so that they can service that population. But right now, honestly, there are so many women who lost mothers when they were young. Um, It's keeping me quite busy Mm. at this time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of um, there could also be people who were um, female identified at birth and became translator who would still have a kind of a a motherless daughter within them, even if they didn't identify as a daughter anymore. So yeah, it gets interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was struck reading your book by how much research has been done and how little that translates into the world of therapy. You know, in my experience, many therapists are not really trained properly to deal with early loss. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in my personal experience, I've had many therapists make assumptions about how my early loss should have played out and suggest that the goal would be to heal it or move past it, Um, which Mm -hmm. in my personal experience really just leads to shame and unrealistic expectations. So that's, that's a problem that I see that I've experienced myself, but I know it's really rampant. So what's your view of how therapists are trained to deal with childhood grief and if that is changing now? Uh, It's a great question. Most therapists receive training when they, if they receive any training in grief and loss in their academic training, most of them will learn or, or study how to help people through the acute phase of grief, meaning someone who is trying to adapt to a recent loss. Right. And they are far less well-versed with doing, with working with individuals who have a loss in the past. Uh, I receive emails kind of on the regular from women saying I went to a grief, a therapist who specializes in grief and loss, and she was good at bringing me back to the time of loss and talking about what happened then, but she didn't, or he didn't have any understanding of what I'm facing today, which is why just earlier this year, I began a training program for therapists, coaches, and other health professionals who work with women who've lost mothers so that they can 
become much more well-versed in how to work with this population. Claire Bidwell Smith and I did a six week training, 12 sessions with our first cohort earlier this year. And um, we're going to start another one in October so that, and we create resource lists so that, so that women can come to our websites and look at lists and, or find therapists near them and coaches who have trained with us and are much more well-versed in how early loss continues to show up in our adult lives. Mm. Yeah. I remember when your book came out. So um, my mom died in 1978, I was 14. So your book came out in 94. So I would have just finished graduate school. And I remember reading about it and really resisting the idea of it. Like the idea of a motherless daughter's book somehow was like the farthest thing from my mind. Um, and then I did come to one of your groups because I was just curious um, this spring, and it really reminded me of that discomfort I felt as a young person being around other people's grief. And I don't know, um, you know, I mean, I've done a lot of work around this. I think it's not that uncommon, but I just really had such a um, almost the opposite of you. I, it sounds like I just really didn't want to be around other people who had experienced grief, um, for, you know, for a long time. So I think that's, um, you know, a lot of young people don't necessarily want to call attention to their grief because it's largely unprocessed, I think. And they're just like scared of it, or it makes them nervous to even, you know, have that kind of amplification, which can happen if you're in a group. I guess my question there is just, do you think there's an age or a period of time that you find people are ready to kind of come around and open to that, open up to their grief and share their experience? No, I think it's really individual. I think some people um, want to grieve in community and others prefer to work through, work it through on their own. Mm -hmm. There are some who teenagers who are very willing to open up and talk about how they're feeling. And there are others who don't want to touch it yeah. for another 10 years. There are some, I've certainly worked with women who get to college and um, feel that they are now separate from the family of origin mm -hmm. where talking about it felt risky or threatening and, and will seek out counseling or a, support group because they feel free and able to give themselves permission to talk about it for the first time. There are others for whom that's the last thing they want to be dealing with once they're out on their own. Um, I can say that most of the women that I work with find that they can only keep it at bay for so long, mm -hmm. you know, addressing their grief and talking about what they experienced before it, it comes around and or resurfaces in a way that makes them feel that they have no choice but to address it now because it has affected their life in ways that have become difficult for them to keep managing. I mean, typically what I find is that we develop coping strategies to manage in the aftermath of a mother's death. And some of those coping strategies are adaptive, like it might be, you know, reaching out to confide in friends or researching a mom's life to learn who she was, for example. But some of them may be maladaptive, like extreme independence is the one that I see most often. Refusing to talk about it is a coping strategy. Um, 
self-medicating might be a coping strategy. And at some point they may discover that these coping strategies are not serving them well anymore, but they don't know how to let go of them because it's such a deeply ingrained part of their personality and their behaviors. Um, and they don't know what to replace it with. So this is when women typically come to motherless daughters retreats. We see women coming for a couple different reasons. When we go around the circle the first night, we've been doing them for 24 women at a time. Next year, it's going to expand because we have such demand mm. for these three night, four day retreats. But we see that women tend to come for a couple of reasons. One is that they're feeling stuck and they don't know how to unstick themselves. And that is usually because they have coping strategies that are no longer working for them and they don't know how to let go of them. Um, they also come because they are approaching a milestone event or experiencing one or just went through one, like um, a wedding, the birth of a child, uh, a divorce, a job loss, and they are really missing the support, the guidance, the what they imagine their mom would have been able to give them if she were still alive. And we also see women come because they are um, about to cross what we call a silent threshold, which is a big one for this group, which is they are reaching, um, approaching, or have just passed the age their mother was when she was diagnosed or died, or their child has reached the age that they were when their mom died. And that is a typically a time when there's a big spike in grief or a resurgence, you know, in that cyclical process. Sure. And they're, they really want to be in the presence of other women who can understand because chances are they don't have any in their social circles other than their sisters who might know what that's like. Yeah. Not everyone's a talker. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us want to externalize and release our emotions through talking about them or speaking with other people, yeah. that is a form of, you know, that can be a form of self-regulation or co-regulation. Yeah. But there are other people who do not find that same kind of release or relief yeah. through talking with other people. Um, yeah. They may write their story mm -hmm. instead. They may paint their story. They may sing their story, right? It's, I think the important thing for us to remember is that externalizing that emotion is what's important. How we do it is going to be very individual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the name of this podcast is, are we there yet? And you're really the first person I've interviewed who I feel might have the authority to try to answer that question. Um, and what I mean is, do you think that we, meaning researchers who study this stuff understand adolescent grief or getting to the point of pretty much understanding it? I think, I think we know a lot more now about the teenage experience than we did when I lost my mom or you lost your mom, yeah. certainly. But I don't think there's any monolithic description or explanation or trajectory for adolescent grief. I think what we have as a culture, well, certainly those who research it, come to appreciate is how different each teenager's experience is going to be and how each one of those kids needs to be assessed and understood within their own specific context. Mm. Were they experiencing stressors in the family before a mother died? What new stressors or ex continuing stressors was that child coping with afterwards? Mm -hmm. What kind of care 
did that teenager receive? I mean, we can say, yeah, the teenage brain, you know, we can talk about the teenage brain. We can talk about teenage emotional development, but every teenager is growing up in their own little cocoon, right? And that is going to, and, and so many things are going to affect their grief response, not just their age. It's going to be what kind of relationship did they have with their mom? How did she die? How were they told? What kind of care did they receive afterwards? They're just, what kind of social support did they have? Again, you know, what kind of stressors surround them? I can't stress that enough because the adverse childhood experiences, um, when you've got, you know, a cumulative uh, number of them, you're, that kid's going to have a really different experience. Were they growing up in poverty? Were they exposed to systemic racism? All of these are going to factor in to what their grief experience was like, which is going to determine what their grief response was like. Did their family talk about the, their loss? Did they get any support in terms of you know, a grief center or a therapist after their mom died? So I think what we do understand is that all of these factors will determine the long-term response and the long-term behaviors. We do understand that. Do we have, you know, like the definitive publication about how teenagers grieve? No, but I don't think that's a realistic goal yeah. for anyone to have. Yeah. Well, Hope, this has been amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. It was such a gift to talk to you. And thanks for all the work you're doing, bringing the, you know, the, the unique nature of mother loss to, to our attention. So how can people find you? Thank you, Anne. It's been a pleasure to be here. And you can find me at either hopeedelman.com or motherlessdaughters.com. They essentially land up in the same place or on Instagram or Facebook. Okay. Hope okay. to see them there. Yeah. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate everybody who has been coming to me and telling me how much they love this podcast, but I really appreciate when people put that online because that helps other people find the show. So if you can take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, that really helps me. And also, if you want to leave comments or, or you have an impression that you want to share, please put that on my Substack, which is called I'm Listening. And I'll have that, uh, the link for that in the show notes. And as always, I want to thank Josephine Wiggs for the music. It's from her album, We Fall. <laughs>